participate with them. Amen. All right. I got about 30 minutes or so, and let's see what we can get done. How about it? I'm going to let you be seated. I I, I entitled this Original Goodness, uh, Not Original Sin. Uh, Some of you uh, may not really be familiar with the term original sin, but I assure you it's very much taught, if not in verbalized in doctrine and theology. Um, How many knows that God's goodness preceded sin? God preceded everything. And the Bible says that man, humanity, was created uh, in the image and the likeness of God. Um, My hope today is that you recognize that and you see that you and I, humanity as a whole, we bear the image of God, our Father. And, and God wants that image to come to be our likeness. In other words, that we, that we live that out uh, in our lives. When you look at, in the Genesis 1 uh, and 2 creation story, but in Genesis 1, God says five times after each day of creation, he said it was good. And then on the sixth day, he made humanity. He made man in his image and in his likeness. And when we say in his image, we're saying in the image of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because that's why God said, let us make man in our image. We have a triune God. Uh, We believe in the the triuneness of God. We We don't have three gods. We have one God. One God, namely in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, and man was created in that, and God said five times it's good, and on the sixth day when he made humanity, then God says this is uh, very good. So we've got God saying good about what he's done, what he's uh, created six times just in the first chapter of the Bible. And then uh, all throughout the Scripture, the Scriptures give a different view of, of our creation and how how God declares it. David talked about it in, in the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 22 and 10, he said, From my mother's womb you have made me. How many knows that God don't make bad stuff? God don't make evil stuff. God don't make broke stuff. God don't make corrupt stuff. Uh, Psalm 119 and 73, uh, the scripture says, Your hands made me and formed me. Then uh, Isaiah 44 and 24 says, Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb. Uh, you see God involved in every aspect of you being and coming into being. Uh, in Psalm 139, this is one that's most well known by almost everybody, verse 14, where David says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, uh, wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. Now, if you believe in original sin doctrine, then it, it, lets, it teaches you that you are born uh, defective, broken, and, but the scripture I just read declares you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You've you got to decide which one of those uh, that you're going to believe. Now, your outward parts may be aging. How many knows the mirror don't lie? Your outward parts might be broken. But your inward parts are first rate because God don't do shoddy work. Can somebody say amen? You're not a mistake because God don't make them. God don't make mistakes. Now, uh, 
what we consider to be the wisest man in the Old Testament because the Bible says he was, King Solomon, he wrote Ecclesiastes in verse 29 of the seventh chapter of Ecclesiastes. This is what he said. He said, now truly this I have found. In other words, he's come to, with wisdom to know this, that God made man upright. God, that's what God did. God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. You want to know, well, if God made us so great, then why all the problems? I just told you. Man is the one that departs and walks and does the things that, that God uh, don't want us to do. And so you may never even heard of this thing called original sin, but the Bible says that we are partakers of God's divine nature. Now, a lot of the, the church world would have you to believe that you're born with a sin nature. How I many heard that? If you read an NIV Bible, you'll, you, you'll come away absolutely convinced because they use a word that's the Greek word sarx, S-A-R-X, which means flesh, and, and they translate that in English as sinful nature or sin nature, and that's not what it says, but that's how they translated it. Um, and so that's where a lot of times people come up, well, I just have a, a, a nature to sin. It's my nature to sin. Now, you have a propensity to it, because of this world that you and I live in. How many knows this ain't heaven yet? But you, you're, but you, you don't have a sin nature. If you had a sin nature, the, a polygraph test would be absolutely useless. And they don't just polygraph Christians. Right? So why, and they're still using it. They're still using that today. And, I, and so what they do is they strap this on, this measuring your blood pressure, you know, pulse, all, all these things. And, and they ask you questions, and if you lie, supposedly that machine indicates that you're a liar. I mean, that's the whole premise behind it. So that in itself proves that it's not normal for you to lie. Because even your body, your tongue might be lying, but your body's reacting and saying, he's lying. Come on, somebody. I mean, that's, what, that's, that's the whole premise of how the machine works. And I understand, you know, that they say, and Todd would know more about this, that, you know, it's not 100%, and it's not always accurate, and whatever, they're still using it. They flat still using it, and uh, and they'll introduce it in the courtroom, and they'll say that we put him on the polygraph, and he lied, you know, whatever. So it's just not normal. Your body reacts, responds to that. But this whole original sin concept came from a guy uh, named Augustine, and it happened in the fifth century. But one thing about original sin, listen, it's never mentioned in the Bible, not one time. And so Augustine, he he interpreted. Uh, Romans 5 particularly, to say that, that, that we inherited all this from Adam as far as the damning consequences, the wrath of God, and, and that was from the womb. And then we get hundreds of years later, here comes Martin Luther along during the Reformation, and he comes along and he tags in on that and takes that from Augustine and he extrapolates it even farther and he says that humanity is nothing but a pile of manure. He called them a, uh, humanity a dung heap. And he said that what, what, what the Lord does, what Jesus does, is he, it, basically what he says, humanity is snow-covered dung. And, uh, and then, so then we get 500 years back now, uh, and, we, and we get to John Calvin, Calvinism. And he takes that, and then he comes up with his famous uh, popular doctrine called total depravity of man. He says that man is totally deprived. In other words, you start out of the gate, you come out of the womb, and you are a totally depraved thing. And that's taught in most all uh, evangelical churches, particularly in America. They've embraced that doctrine. 
And then, uh, and then so we get a couple of a hundred years after John Calvin uh, goes that route and, and teaches and everybody holds on to total depravity. And then we get Jonathan Edwards. Y'all remember this dude. And if you Google what's the greatest sermon ever preached in, in America, they're going to tell you that it's his sermon. Anybody remember the name of it? You should know it right here. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. So Jonathan Edwards in his sermon says that you are hated by God. That he sees you as a vile insect like a spider dangling over a flame. He, he cannot bear to look at you. Isn't that a wonderful sermon? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. First off, uh, you're not that. Secondly, God's not angry. Because you don't have anything to be angry about. Now, God's not pleased with, with people when they do things that hurt and harm anybody. Just like you're not pleased as a parent when your kids do things to harm themselves. But so Jonathan Edward, he, he, he condemns everybody. And then the, the evangelicals, Protestants, us, we, we, in, we embrace that teaching. We embrace that thought of original sin and that we're totally depraved and all this. And so then when that come along, and listen to me, then they had the uh, 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 evangelicals had to modify that teaching because they couldn't swallow it. Because if you take what these guys taught, then they're literally saying that you're born like that. And when a baby dies, they go straight to hell. Well, they couldn't, they couldn't fathom that. They couldn't, in other words, that's just not logical. They couldn't, you know, their brain went warp on that. So now they invent something, a teaching, a doctrine that, by the way, is not, none of this is in the Bible, and it's called the age of accountability. How many of you in this room has heard of the age of accountability, and you heard somebody say it, teach it, or talk about it like it was in the Scriptures? Hold your hand again. Look at here, most of the room. It's not in the Bible. It don't exist. They made it up. And, and almost every one of you held your hand up, and the others that didn't just caused me and you just too lazy to. And so, I love you. Come on now. And you were taught that, and, and, and it, is, it is echoed by Christians like it's in the book. It's talked about like age of accountability. Because, see, that way that gets them out of that clause of this, you're born totally depraved. And, and, so, and then they didn't like it because the Catholic Church was said, you've got to baptize every baby as soon as they get here. And if they die before we get them baptized, they go straight to hell. And so then the process didn't like the, the you know, forcing mortar baptism on the baby. So then, you know, the babies don't like it if you shove them under the water. So then we started sprinkling them, you know, we just fling a little water on them. And then we'll just call that baptism. And it's like magic and abracadabra, there you go, we just saved you. And then you become the Savior, and your water becomes the source, and your church becomes the, you know, the specialized clergy. And, and all of it's just men playing religious games. Good morning. We're glad you're here. So, so in Genesis, God said, I made things good. And when I made humanity, I did very good. And if you believe original sin then your most Christian theologies at that point, once they embraced all this stuff that these men came up with, then they shifted, the, the evangelical world, the Protestant world, shifted from a positive goodness foundation and a positive goodness vision to a negative, depraved, dark vision and a dark view of man as a whole. And if you start with that, that's what I'm trying to get you to see. I know that's a little bit heavy, what I've said so far, but if, if you start with that then if you start with a no, it's hard to get a yes. 
And so instead of, listen, instead of, of humanity embracing God's plan for humanity and creation, then once you embrace original sin, then what that does is that shrinks your vision for humanity and creation. Uh, that's where you say stuff don't matter. It don't matter because it's all going to hell in a handbasket anyway. And, and listen to this. It shrinks your view of Christ. Let me ask you this. Was Christ... John tells us in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We know that the Word is known on, when He came to earth as Jesus Christ. But, I mean, wasn't He significant before man sinned? I mean, did he, did, he have, did he have a place? Did Jesus Christ have a place in the triuneness of God before Adam and Eve was created? Was he important? But see, when you have original sin concept, then what Jesus does is he essentially becomes our rescue ranger. In other words, he's our rescue ranger. He's our sin problem solver. And, and what that is, is it limits and shrinks down the role of Jesus Christ to a very small role. And what we go around saying is, now you're going, to, you're going to derail on this a minute until you hear me, but we say his death instead of his life is what is defined as saving us. His death didn't save you. I knew I was going to get just that kind of response. Mm-mm. That ain't what the Bible says. Please put up Romans 5 verse 10 so they know I'm not lying. Romans 5 and 10 says, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, didn't have nothing to do with you, nothing, nothing to do with you, reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, now having been reconciled, past tense, we shall be saved by his what? We shall be saved by his what? We shall be saved by his what? You're saved by his life. Now, you know that because Paul said, without the resurrection, your faith is in vain. So it's not his dying on the cross. Yes, he forgave you from the cross. He forgave us, but it was his life, the resurrection. Because what happens now is that Jesus is not just the mop-up guy of the mess that Adam made. Uh, uh, Jesus, and what, what happened is we, we just see Jesus as he's the mop-up guy for the sin problem. And then what the church is focused on is the church has been dominated. The whole church story has been dominated by sin management. And the church is so sin conscious as a whole, so uh, sin focused. So that's all we talk about sin. And, 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 and you know, we got to preach again. None of that works. Never has. The Bible says in Hebrews that if the offering works, there would be no more consciousness of sin. You don't talk about it. You don't get over eating sweets by talking about sweets. It's stupid. Well, how do we overcome sin? The Bible tells you. It says, lay aside every sin and the weight that does so easily cause you to stumble. Well, how do we do it? Keep reading. Comma, next verse. Looking unto Jesus the author and the finisher of your faith. So how do you overcome sin? Staring at sin, talking about sin, preaching against sin? No, you look to Jesus. Why? Because he's the one that's overcome. And in him you've overcome. 
So the teaching of original sin started us off on the wrong foot with a no instead of a yes, with a, a mistrust instead of a trust. And let me tell you what salvation is. Salvation is not a thing. Salvation is not a train ticket on the glory-bound train. Salvation is not a ticket with your name on it. Salvation is not your name written in a book, even if it is the book of life. book of life is a person. We need to learn how to read metaphors and poems. Salvation is a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ, he literally dwells within you. And if you don't know that, get last Sunday's podcast. Yes, Christ died. He forgave us from that cross. But when you put your faith in Jesus, then you, you have his life. What kind of life does Jesus have? Temporary? Oh, eternal. See, you can't have a delayed response to having life. When you, when you trust in the Lord right here and now, you have eternal life. That's why death ain't got nothing to do with you. Death has lost its sting. It's lost its snare. It's lost its venom. It's lost its mind because Jesus overcame death. Yeah, we're going to move on. We're going to you know, get a glorified body. Yeah, we're going to do that, but we're not going to die. Jesus said you're not going to die. That's why Jesus wouldn't even glorify death by saying the word, yeah, he's dead. He said, Lazarus is not dead, he's just asleep. They said, he's dead. He said, I should sleep. He said, we go to awaken him. <laughs> Jesus wouldn't even, wouldn't even glorify it by calling it death because Jesus knew I've come to, to defeat death. And so this is what I want you to stand. How, how, how are we sharers or partakers with the divine nature? That's what the Bible says. It says it in two places. That we, in the New Testament, that we, that we now partake of that divine nature. Listen to this statement. You're made in the image and likeness of God, but the image must become likeness. You're made in the image and likeness of God, but God's, the image must become your likeness. In other words, we should look and live and be like God. Now listen to this. Even a good theology that I hope you get around here will have a hard time making up for bad anthropology. Do you understand? So a good theology is hard for it to overcome bad anthropology. In other words, the foundation, you're what you believe about your beginning. Now, if Martin Luther is right in his assessment that we are nothing more than snow-covered dung, and that's what Jesus did, then that means Jesus did not undo sin. He just covered it. That John lied when he pointed to him at his baptism and said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away sin. He didn't come to take it away. He came to sweep sin under the rug and cover it. People say, used to tell me when I grew up in church, Hey, brother, you know, you just need to put that sin under the blood. There ain't no sin to put under the blood if Jesus took it away. Jesus didn't cover sin. He didn't, he, he didn't cover sin. Jesus removed it. How far did he remove it? He said from the, as far as the east is from the west. Get back to me on how many miles that is. Now, one thing that's crucial, if, you're gonna, if, you, if the image is, is going to become likeness, 
then it's going to require a yes from you. Yeah, require a yes. Remember when God sent Gabriel to talk to a teenage Jewish girl named Mary? And, and he asked her, did she want to give birth to God in the earth? Did she want to manifest God where he could be touched, seen? And then he paused. And she said, yes. God wasn't going to go down there and jack her up and make her have that baby. God gave her a choice, just like he gives you one. God don't want robots, never has had them. God said, this is what I want to do, girl. You in? She said, be it unto me, according to your word. And in that moment, she conceived, and that, that moment, incarnation was on. The incarnation, you know what I mean by that? God becoming flesh. The word became flesh. And so you got to say, I have to say yes. If you want the likeness to come out of that image, then you got to say yes. And listen to me. And what you got to say yes to is to the truth of our being. You've heard me use that phrase before. I didn't invent it. But the truth of our being, this is what that is. It's a big word, ontology. O-N, ontology. And what ontology is just a fancy word for being. So your ontology, in other words, the truth of your being is that Christ is in you. The hope of glory. He's in you. I don't, I don't feel him. I don't matter if I feel him or not. He's in there. You don't feel your liver either, but it's in there. You mean a lot you don't feel is in there though. But by but but so listen, so by faith, by faith, I identify myself as a beloved child of God. Listen to this, chosen by him before the foundation of the world. You and I were chosen by God before the foundation of the world, before there was a Genesis, before there was an Adam, before there was anything. God chose you in him. And not only did he chose you, it says he chose you to be sons and daughters, predestined you for that as adoption through the Lord Jesus himself. That is such a huge deal. And that's Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 if you need the verse for it. That's what it says. That God chose you in him before the foundation of the world. That's before you did anything. Before you did this, oh God. Before you did anything, God chose you. And he said, that's my son and that's my daughter. That's why Paul could stand on Mars Hill in Acts, 6, Acts 17, I told you last week, and talk to a bunch of Greek heathens that we, they would be referred to in that in that time. And, and he said, listen, don't you know that we're all children of God? You're his offspring. That's what he told them. We are all the offspring of God. And he said, in him, you live, move, and have your being. Your ontology is in him. And they're there worshiping a, a, a stone statue. And it says, to the unknown God. And Paul said, I, I saw your statue. I saw the altar y'all got. And I saw y'all worshiping. And he said, you're worshiping a, a God that you don't know. I came to introduce him to you and tell you who he is and what his name is. And so, I, I, that, you, you, you have to focus, to, you have to say yes to the truth of your being. Now, this, this choosing, this, this, my ontology, if you use that word, it was established, listen to me, this was established not at my conversion. 
In other words, my conversion, I mean, when I came to awaken to this truth, it sets me free. But on the cross is where it happened. How many knows Jesus' crucifixion on the cross predates everybody in this room? Okay? On the cross, Paul writes, while we were powerless, while we were a sinner, still a sinner, and while we were his, uh, uh, we were an enemy. God has never looked at a human in the Bible and said, you're my enemy. It ain't in there. We have looked at God and said, he's my enemy. When Adam and Eve sinned, their guilt and shame, they, they, tra- they, they transposed that onto God's image and they hid from him. And God still come after them, looking for them. They said in their hearts, he's my enemy now. You have to hide from your enemy. God was not their enemy, but they thought he was because of their sin. Last Sunday, I got my little grandson by Abel. Peace out, bro. Um, he's my youngest grandchild, and his daddy dropped him off because he won't come to his poppy's church today. Uh, and then my son will come get him and have lunch with us in a minute. But when Austin was like 10, his papa gave him a cross, I think it's called a cross, double X, what do they call them, knives, pocket knives, cross double X or something like that. Anyway, it's a sharp pocket knife. I was a little bit, oh, I ain't sure about this. Yeah. Uh, have you met your grandson? <laughs> and I'm like, Austin, you got to be careful with that, buddy. That knife ain't no joke, bro. That's sharp now. Okay? Be careful with it. I know Pop, you know, uh, Papa will give that to you, but be careful. So when we lived out on the farm where I used to live, we had a barn out there and you know, all that stuff. And I knew Austin was out there. I'd seen him go out there. And I went out to the barn and stuff, and I'm hollering, you know, Austin, where are you at? Well, I'm hollering for him, and he don't answer. Now, I know he's out there. And so I start walking around the barn. Well, he's really out there. I can't see all this. But he's, 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 he's walking around the other side of the barn where I can't see him. And I had to make like two circles, and I finally got, I said, Austin, I know you're out here. You, you better get your butt over here. To me, what you doing? So then he sheepishly comes out and walks around holding that pocket knife and he's got blood all over his britches. He cut himself. And he's bleeding. Not so bad we got to have stitches. Not so bad we got to go. I mean, his daddy's a paramedic, okay? So it's not that we got to do all that. But I'm, I'm looking at the blood and I said, what are you doing? Well, I cut myself. I can see that. I guess in his, what do you think I'm doing? While you're bleeding, I'm going to... I'm going to Beat you? I'm going to spank you? Are you kidding? No, I'm going to bandage you up. Now, I did take the knife. I'm like, I did like Andy does to Barney when he shoots the gun in the courthouse. (laughs) I just put my hand out, you know what I'm saying? And he, you know, he hands the knife. And I said, I'm going to put this up for a little while now, and then I'll give it back to you. You just need to be a little bit older on this hand now. Because you, you can really hurt yourself. I told you to be careful. See, my warning about the knife was not to give him a rule to see if he would obey it. My warning, be careful with the knife or don't cut yourself, was not a rule or legal law. It was, I love you, son, and I don't want you to hurt yourself. I don't want you to hurt yourself because I love you. And, that, and that's what God does. When God says, don't eat of this tree, God's not saying, I put this in and just try to test you. God's saying, I love you. This just brings death. Don't do it. 
God didn't say in the day you eat of this tree of knowledge of good and evil, and in that day I shall kill you. He said, if you do that, you'll die, because that's not life. You, you can't produce life by doing good and evil and, you know, do more good than you do evil and, and be morality-based. That's what the world thinks. You know, it's, they still, American church, it's morality. You know, you keep the rules, don't sin, do the, it's got nothing to do with that. Man couldn't keep the rules anyway. God knew they couldn't. He, he didn't ever give the law because he thought somebody could keep them. He gave the law to highlight that you can't keep them and you need something different than that and you need a Savior whose name is Jesus, who is life, and he'll put that life in you and that will overcome all that. That's what it was. And, and, but my son, why's my son hiding from me while he's bleeding? Isn't that stupid? He knows I love him. And he's hiding from his daddy. If that don't display the garden scene, I don't know what does. Son, you, I'm here to help. I'm not fixing to beat you while you're bleeding. Now give me the knife. I love you. I'm not being punitive. I'm not being retributive. I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm not trying to take a good thing from you. You just might need to be a little bit older and then I'll give back. God loves you enough that he might take something just and just hold it for you. If God, God never takes something from you. If he did, he'd be a thief. Well, the, you know, Job said stupid stuff in his book. You want to read some stupid stuff about God? Read the book of Job. Because not only was Job saying stupid stuff, but them three other friends, they said a bunch of stupid stuff. And God let stupid people say stupid things about him in his book to just let us know that we're not the only stupid ones on the earth. They were some before we got here. <laughs> Come on, somebody. And one of the dumbest things that Job ever said that preachers quote all the time in their dumbness, as if God's really said that, is the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is the dumbest statement. It is so anti-God and God didn't say it. God don't agree with it. And it's not Bible as far as the word. It's not God. That's something stupid Job said. Because if the Lord gives and then the Lord takes away, then that makes him a thief. If I gave you something, and then I turn around six months later and said, I'm here to take that back. Number one, you're going to be mad at me. Number one, you're never going to trust me. You're not going to trust my word, and you're going to consider me a thief. Or at least, at minimum, a liar. Because you said you gave it. I guess you didn't. And you're going to say, God does that? Lord, give us, Lord, take away, bless me. Stop saying stupid stuff about Papa. Don't get your understanding of who God is from book, a book called Job. Job is a super inferior revelation of who God is. That's why God said, y'all got it so wrong, so messed up, so screwed up. I'm going to have to come in person and show you who I am. Boom, Jesus, here I am. Want to see the Father? Look at him. Here he is. Because we couldn't get it from reading about it. We had to touch him. We had to see him. And I will never let any human ever drag me to any other book and try to prove to me who God is, how God is, and, and, and what kind of God he is, other than Jesus Christ himself. The book is wonderful. I thank God for it. But the, 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 the book is not the word of God. Those 66 books from Genesis to Revelation is not the word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus is the Word. In the beginning was the Word. 
And the Word was with God, face to face. And the Word was God. Don't point to me at some book and say, that's the Word of God. No, that ain't the Word of God. You better be pointing at Jesus when you tell me that's the Word of God. And if you can't prove it to me in Jesus, I don't care what any book, even that book says, unless you can see it in Him. Because He's the Word. He's the living Word. He's the, he's the eternal Word. He's God in the flesh. And I ain't buying none of your religious stuff, no matter where you point. Or who's preaching it? If you can't see it in Jesus. Well, sometimes, Lord, don't. No, I ain't doing all that. It'll just free you up. I got to quit. Here we go. All this happened on the cross. We were powerless sinners and enemies. Paul said, God forgave you. God reconciled you to himself. God justified you. So what does all this mean? That's the truth of my being. That's the truth of your being. You are forgiven, you are justified, and you're reconciled, and you are a child of God. Well, I've never prayed a prayer. It don't matter, you're still a child of God. You just don't know it. You need preachers like me to awaken you to the truth. That's why Paul said, he said, God revealed Christ in me. I didn't know it. I didn't know I had Christ in me. I thought he was out there, up there. No, he was in you the whole time. Listen to this. The indwelling grace of the Father, Son, and Spirit in us, in you, in me, is at work right now, transforming me so that the truth of my being, which is my, own, uh, 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 my, my, my identity from God, the image, the truth of my being, in other words, my real existence becomes the way of my being. My likeness becomes like him. And so the truth of my being in Christ will impact the way of my being. Let me say this to you. Right believing always leads to right living. You don't have to worry about telling people how to live. Just tell them how to believe. See, and let me just finish with this. Satan comes to him in the garden, right? Through a serpent, and he's, and he's speaking lies. And he convinces them that, to, you know, in other words, they're made in the image and likeness of God. Now, that likeness may not be just, you know, flaring out, showing as to the degree that we want it. Maybe even the possibility of that in Adam and Eve. The garden was a wonderful place. It was a, it, that's, the, that's the metaphor, garden, a place of, of, of uh, growth, a, a place uh, that could be uh, cultivated and cared for and, and provides and, and just perfect. And, just one, and, and that's the scene that we have. And Satan comes into that scene and says, you have to do something to be like God. That's what he got him with. You have to eat of this tree. Because God knows, because he lied to you, that in the day you eat of this tree that he told you not to eat of, that in that day that your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You'll be like God. In other words, to be like God, you have to do something. But for them to be like God, they only had to believe something. This is where the difference is, big time. To be like God, you and me don't do nothing. To be like God, we believe something, someone. Believe in someone. It is not our doing that makes us like God, it's our believing that makes us like God. Adam and Eve were deceived, and they thought they had to do something in order to be like God. And they thought they had to be like God to be liked by God. Great deception. And he's been pulling that same lie 
ever since. It worked one time, why not keep using it? And so this is where religion comes in. Okay, to be like God, and here to come with the rules. To be like God, you need to be baptized by this person. To be like God, they got the chant, the same chant. They got, oh, you got baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Oh, you're not going. Oh, tough cookies for you. You had to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And if they didn't dunk you in one and say, Jesus Christ, then you're not really saved. And by the way, you're not part of church, and so you're not going to heaven because we're the only ones going to heaven. How arrogant religion is. To think out of all the billions of people that's ever lived and on the planet now, your group is the only people that's going to make it. I guess love does fail. I guess sin does win. And I guess Satan is the one that's got more people than God did, and so God makes him the loser. You going to swallow that? I wouldn't come to a church that taught that either. Mm -mm. You don't have to do anything to be like God. Because you've been created in image and likeness. Now, you're not manifesting the likeness as good as you would like to. How do I manifest this divine nature? Believe. Believe what? Believe in the truth of who you are, the truth of your being. That you are loved. You're a child of God. You are forgiven. God's not angry with you. God reconciled you to him. He didn't need to reconcile himself to you because he's never left you. And he's never separated from man. And he reconciled you to him because you're the one hiding in the bushes. You're hiding from God because you don't think he likes you and you think he wants to hurt you. God's never been that God. God loves you. He cares for you while you were a sinner, while you were powerless, while you were weak, while you considered God your enemy. God never considered you an enemy, but when you considered him one, then God got on the cross, took all your pain, took all your sin, took all uh, your hatred, took all your murderous uh, wrath against him. And what did he do? Did he call for the angels? Did he punish you? Did, was he retributive? No, he said, I forgive him. And he extended forgiveness and he forgave man. And then he walked into a place called Hades, hell, death, the grave. And because God can't die, he had to come in as a man. And the God-man, Jesus, walked into death, and he swallowed death. He died. But death could not hold him, because death could not be victorious over God. And so God, while he, they said he's dead, he just was not dead. And so he went into the prison, he went into Hades, went into Sheol, went in, if you understand all these terms, and he went in there and he preached the gospel to all the people that had died from the days of Noah. And he preached to them and he led a parade of captives out of there victoriously to heaven with him. That's why he could look at a thief on the cross by his side being crucified who wasn't in a member of church, who did not get no baptism card, who did not say the sinner's prayer because it ain't in the Bible, who did not confess not one sin, who did not pray one prayer. He just simply looked at Jesus and said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's Jesus said, that's good enough for me because you believe in me. He said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. That messes up all your little church stuff. No baptism, no church membership, no commitment card, no sinner's prayer, no confessing of your sin, and Jesus still tells you he's going with me. And all you religious people that says you, they got to do this, they got to confess their sins, they got to do this, they got to do that, all of you are just nuts. Amen. It's just ridiculous. And now I'm getting old enough, 
and tired enough that I just don't give a rat's rear end whether you like it or not. I'm telling you that God is bigger, greater, more powerful, more loving, more forgiving, more reconciling than you could ever imagine. And I need to calm down. But I love people. I don't like them being lied to. I don't like that I was deceived and was part of that scheme, not intentionally, in my early ministry. I don't want, uh, one thing, you, like I said last Sunday, you'll never, and go through the book of Acts. And whether it's a group of people preaching, a single apostle preaching, or if it's Stephen preaching, or, or whoever it is in, in Acts, preaching the gospel. Go through and, and take some time, I'm serious about it, and write down what they said. And write down the common thing that all of them said. And then I want you to write down the thing that they never said. They never mentioned hell, not one time. They never threatened anybody. They never mentioned death. They never said, hurry and get this done before you die. They never put pressure on anybody and tried to get them to make a decision today. And they didn't tell car wreck stories at the end of their talk to try to scare you into heaven as if it's so bad that we got to scare you in there. They just showed them a father that loved them, that forgave them. And if you could trust somebody that loves you like that while you're still a sinner, could you not just surrender your life to that kind of love and that kind of care and that kind of papa? That's all they did. And that's all this preacher will do. And I'm never no more none of that religious games. Amen? Stand to your feet. <laughs> Twelve oh eight. I didn't do bad with that thirty minutes I had. I, I had to shorten it up, but it probably made it better. Hallelujah. <laughs> I do love y'all. I like to have fun. I'm a happy person. God started you off on a divine yes and goodness. Launch from there. Don't launch from sin. Negative. No. no. There's a, there's a study I read it some time ago. It's called the uh, Velcro something study. It's Velcro. In other words, we have a propensity in our humanity for negative. And that's why Paul said rejoice. And again I say <laughs> rejoice. And if you think that's just a glib little saying, you know, trite saying, he wrote that from prison. He was in prison in a dungeon when he wrote Philippians. Rejoice. Rejoice, I say. In all things, give thanks unto God. So we have, we, we, we were drawn to the negative. And in this study I read years ago, it said you have to really focus on, and you have to, and, and you have to focus on something good for at least 15 seconds as a human to make it even begin to try to stick. Whereas negative stuff will stick to your brain like Velcro. That's why they named it that study, Velcro something else. I forget the last name. So, you, so Paul knew that, that humans like that, and he said, think on these things. If there's anything good, if there's anything noble, anything of virtue, anything trustworthy, anything honorable, I say to you, think on these things. Think on those things. Be positive. Think on those things. It's not like mind over matter. It's just think on what God says to think. And this world's going to feed you negative. The news is going to feed you negative. 
And I'm going to feed you good news because we're not attracted to good, we're attracted to, to negative. But as a believer, you have to focus and know I'm going to believe the good. I'm going to look for good in every human because every human bears the image and the likeness of their papa. They just don't know it. And I know they're mad and they're angry and they're evil and, and, and they're hurtful, and, but, but still it's in there. And you've got to speak to that. And can I just say this to you? You know, the Bible says that if your enemy is thirsty, what are you supposed to do to him? Give him something to drink. And if he's hungry, what are you supposed to do to him? Okay, and so then we go in the New Testament. And this is where Christians, oh, God, I wish I had time. Listen, but he says when, when your enemy, you, you give them drink, give them food, because when you're kind to them, listen, he said you, you heap coals of fire upon their head. Now, you ever thought about that, what, what that means? See, what, what I grew up talking about means that that's, that's a way of kind of getting them. I'm feeding them a biscuit, but God's kicking their butt, you know, heaping coals of fire on you. I'm going to be nice to you because you are a POS, and I'm going to be nice to you, and that way I'm going to heap coals of fire on you. And it's just your little taste of hell's coming for you, brother. You know what it is? Our God's a consuming fire. We're going to all pass through that fire. And God says, everything that's not of me, I'm going to set as a purifier. And all the wood, hay, and stubble, Paul said, that's going to get burned up. All that hatred, all that racism, all that evil, all that murderous, all that hate, it's going to be burned up. And so when you're kind to somebody that's unkind to you, and you feed them, and you clothe them, then what you're doing is you're putting that God, not hellfire, brimstone, God, our God is a consuming fire. You're, you're, you're pouring fire. You're heaping fire and coals on their head. What does that do? That fire burns out that hatred. It burns out that racism. It burns out that evil. And God said, when you're kind to somebody, you're an instrument of my consuming fire, and you're, I'm literally using you to burn that out of them. Because he said, don't, let, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome uh, evil with good. How do I do it? By giving them a drink. By feeding them. Being nice to them. God said, you're heaping coals of fire on their heads. You're burning that stuff out of them. You're my ambassador. You're my kid. They, they didn't see it coming. They, didn't, they thought they was going to give evil for evil. They thought they cussed you. You're going to cuss them. They thought they slapped you. You're going to slap them. No, you turned the other cheek. You did the Sermon on the Mount. You loved them. You're pouring fire on that. And you're burning out that wood hay and stubble in them. God says, way to go. Be kind. You got to try that. You got to focus. You, you was evil to me. I'm going to be kind to you. I'm, I'm going to be kind to you. I choose to be. Because Jesus, that's, that's, that's His way. That, I want my likeness to be His image, which is kind, long-suffering, forgiving, how about that? That's a good one to leave on. You're probably going to go to a restaurant, somebody here, and the waitress is going to be mean to you, and then you'll have you, be sweet. Be sweet. Be sweet to them. Be kind to them. You don't know what hell they're living in. Be kind to them. Be patient with them. Be God's ambassador to them. Pour coals of fire on their head. Help burn the wood, hay, and stubble out. Not out of vengeance, retribution, punishment. None of that's in the kingdom. It's restorative. It's redemptive. Y'all ever hear about how good God is at this church? <laughs> I'm here if you would want prayer for any reason.
My elders would come and help me if more come than I can pray for. We always believe in prayer. We believe that we lay hands on the sick and they recover. We believe that God does awesome things like he does. And we're, that's always available to you. It ain't just preach, go eat a biscuit, and we'll see you next Sunday deal. But I'm always up here for you if you need me. And we love you. We love this church. We wanted to celebrate things in here today and these people. And, 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 and it's just a, it's a, it's a wonderful church family. And these people in here got so much love, what you see Max doing. it, I, My heart's so touched by these people in here, every one of you. And just go and do that stuff, man. Show forth the love of your papa, okay? Go enjoy your day. Love you.